crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brett Nuktagal, your host. Today we're going to be talking about a couple of stories, the Caesar Act that was implemented this week on Wednesday by the United States, which is going to target the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad. We'll be talking about that in the second half and the effect that it's going to have on biblical prophecy. It's actually quite stunning to consider what the United States is doing with this and who exactly is being targeted by it. And how it looks like it will be effective in other ways, as opposed to the other ways the United States has tried to rid Iran's hold on both Syria and Lebanon. We'll be talking about that in the second half. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the revelations that have come out this week as to the second resolution that President Obama of the United States was trying to ram through the United Nations against the state of Israel. You might have seen this recorded and reported on in the Jerusalem Post and also Israel Hayom this past week, and it was originally thought that it might have been made up, that there wasn't a secondary UN resolution that was coming forward, but then proof surfaced in the most unlikely place, proof proof surfaced inside the Kislyak-Flynn phone calls. We'll get to that part, but first I want to bring you back to the original Security Council Resolution 2334 that was passed at the Security Council. Council, and that happened because the United States decided that it would side with the rest of the world instead of vetoing it. It has veto power in the Security Council as one of the permanent one of the permanent members there, and it can decide as one of those five members to not let something pass. But uh, Samantha Powers at the time let that pass on December twenty third, two thousand and sixteen, which basically called. Any Jewish person living inside the the territory that Israel won in the Six-Day War, so anything in East Jerusalem inside Judea and Samaria, if you're there, you are now living against international law called Israel's control over the old city, over the Jewish quarter, breaking international law, called what Israel was doing, praying at the Western Wall against international law. And we wrote about this at the time as the parting shot against the state of Israel by President Obama, who worked hard, worked very hard to oust Prime Minister Netanyahu, who worked very hard to empower Israel's enemies, and also worked very hard to empower the Palestinians against the state of Israel by these unilateral actions at the United Nations. Again, a place that is normally... Uh, well, it's normal for them to attack Israel, but it wasn't normal for the United States to go along with it. So that happened on on December 23rd. And this is how we, we go transition now to the calls that were being made between General Michael Flynn and the Russian ambassador Kislyak. This, these are the calls that have centered around Flynn being fired. These are the calls that were centered around the rationale for the ongoing spying campaign of the deep state, the United States against President Trump as he came into office. This is partly behind the Mueller probe as well, these phone calls. And these phone calls took place around December 22nd was the first one, and they continued into the early January. And these were the calls that were between Flynn and Kislyak. 
President Trump isn't in power just yet, but it is the it is the uh, normal situation inside the United States governments when you do have a peaceful transition of power that after the election, whoever is deemed going to go forward as the president, it is then his foreign policy that wins out, even though he's not the uh, the president yet. The president elects foreign policy that wins out. It is normal, completely normal for the incoming team to start calling other international players. And normally it is the State Department of the caretaker government that follows, al- follows along with what the new government wants to do and doesn't get in the way. And yet the whole situation now is being framed in the United States that he wasn't even part of the United States government yet. Yet, Let's put the Logan Act on him, which really goes after a United States citizen that acts against the state in terms of reaching out to foreign powers. But Flynn wasn't doing that because he was part of the transition team. He was going to be the national security advisor. And so past precedent would have it that they would have free reign and that the outgoing government would not do anything to jeopardize the policy of the incoming government. And that's why it was so bizarre to even Kislyak to see what the Obama administration was trying to do, trying to sanction certain individuals in Russia, trying to basically make the situation very difficult for Trump from the get-go with the relations with Russia. Russia didn't fall for it, though. They saw what the what the Obama administration was was doing. But let's get to what happened with Israel, because the very substance of these calls between Kislyak and Flynn was all about Israel, was all about the UN resolutions that the United States was pushing through. Now, this resolution was put, being pushed through. And it was meant to be voted on, I believe, on the on the 23rd. And the original sponsor of that bill that br- who was bringing it forward was Egypt, who was a non-permanent member of the Security Council. Netanyahu called out to President Trump to help. And President Trump called Sisi of Egypt at the time. Sisi withdrew the resolution. But then it was put forward again by the other writers. I think it was Senegal, um, New Zealand, Thailand, and one other. And so the the original deal did come to vote. But on the 22nd, Flynn was calling lots of people. He wasn't just calling the Russian ambassador. He was calling many nations. And he was asking them, what is your position? Are you going to be for it? Are you going to be against it? And the Russians said, well, we're going to be for this resolution. We are not going to veto it. We're going to let it pass. Flynn says, okay. So that was on the 22nd. On the 23rd, it passes. And you remember the United States, the, the United Nations Security Council rejoice. Together, because Samantha Powers put up her hand to, to abstain from the vote, and that passed. After it did, we asked at the time, is there another vote coming? There was a few more weeks for President, President Obama to be in power and declaring uh, West Jer- or East Jerusalem, the old city, while it is horrific to say that that's illegally occupied by the state of Israel, perhaps there would be something else. And it turns out there was something else. There was a new resolution that was being put forward and pushed by the United States that was going to say, this is from uh, David Zev Jablinowicz, who actually talked to Obama back in 2016. This is how we how we knew that something was going on, but we didn't have proof for it back then. He said, quote, that Obama told him he had a resolution in the works that would set the parameters for an Israeli-Palestinian final status agreement that would include a Palestinian state and would include a time frame by which such talks should be completed. 
And so he was going to ram through this idea. This, These are the borders. Back on the 1949 lines, these are going to be the borders of the two states. And you've got a certain time frame to come to the agreement together, Israelis and Palestinians. If not, this we are going to recognize Palestinian state. Now, all the details of the resolution that was being brought forward are not known to us yet. I suppose they would be soon, just with the rapid fire of all this information that's coming up. And we didn't really know. Netanyahu's talked about this. Uh, Then we had Israel Hayom uh, come out with it this week, that this was going to happen. And without too much evidence, it was just hearsay at that point. And then sure enough, Somebody had look had a look at more of the Kislyak phone calls, and this phone call then took place on December 29. This was a follow-up call. That's when Flynn was talking to Kislyak. Flynn did not even bring up this next resolution. It looks like he might not even known about it. In the meantime, what we had was Danny Dan and the, the Israeli ambassador to the UN hear about this next proposal of the United States of a resolution. This was one week, just a few days after the previous resolution. And he reached out to the to the Russians to find more details. Then he took it up the line to Benjamin Netanyahu, who then called up Putin, Vladimir Putin, to discuss what Obama was planning. It's crazy. It's crazy that there was another resolution that was going to come forward. So in this phone call... On the 29th of December, this is what Kislyak says. And this is a side point at the end of the conversation. He says this, since you were interested in the Middle East, the issue of the Middle East, and you called me on that issue, we wanted to convey to you, that is the Russians, and through you to the president-elect, that is Donald Trump, that we have significant reservations about the idea of adopting now the principles for the Middle East that our American colleagues are pushing for. Are pushing for. So we are not going to support it in the quartet, that is the, the quartet that is trying to mediate peace in the Middle East, or the Security Council, and we have conveyed that to our American colleagues. It's not something that we, Russia, are going to support. (laughs) Can you believe that? Can you believe that? That Israel's greatest ally, the United States, under the leadership of President Obama, when he is a caretaker president, he's already given one shot to Israel, and he's coming up with another one, and it took the Russians to say, that's a crazy idea. That's even far further than we would push it. And so we're not we're going to veto that if you bring that forward to the to the Security Council. And so nothing ever happened to it. Now, I will say that the Russian Foreign Ministry, uh, Dan Shapiro, the the former United States ambassador to Israel, I believe he was, both of them have come out and said this never happened. This never happened. There was never a second resolution. Well, Shapiro says there's never a second resolution. And then the Russians said that this is just absurd, this idea that Netanyahu called Putin to stop this thing that was going forward. And yet here we have the transcript of the actual phone call. You can get this. I'll leave a link for it if you want, the Flynn transcripts. If you're searching it for Russia, if you're searching it for Ukraine, anything else, you might not find much. But the interesting things happen, the interesting revelation is that there was another parting shot that Obama had planned against the state of Israel. And this is something we have been focused on of late. We've been looking into the Obama administration, what they did to General Flynn, 
We went through the Lee Smith piece from a few weeks ago that showed that a lot of the unmasking of Flynn that was done by the, that is trying to reveal his identity by a number of Obama administration officials inside this period of the transition, why they were trying to find out who was making all these calls, what they were saying. It was because they wanted to perpetuate their foreign policy into the Trump administration. President Obama didn't think that President Trump was going to win. He didn't think that Hillary, he thought Hillary Clinton was going to go uh, come through for him. And so he wouldn't have to worry about huge changes to his middle reorienting of the Middle East against the state of Israel. That's what it was about. It wasn't just a nuclear deal. It was the cover that the nuclear deal gave him to give rise to powers like Syria, to give powers like Hezbollah in Lebanon, to give rise to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. That's what he was after. And then, lo and behold, President Trump gets elected and they have to scramble. They're scrambling to find some way of perpetuating their foreign policy in the Middle East into the Trump administration. Of course, if they can remove Trump from office, all the better as well. And we've been getting into these details. But how is it and why is it that President, President Obama went to such great lengths to build up and empower Israel's greatest enemy, that of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And why is it that President Obama, as he's walking out the door, is trying to ram Security Council resolutions through that jeopardize the security of the state of Israel in terms of vital status agreements with the Palestinians? What motivates President Obama? What was motivating him? And is that motivation still around? Is there pl- are there plenty of people that still would like to see a return to that state? Now, I would say that the election of President Trump really did undo a lot of that. And what would have happened? What would have happened to the state of Israel? Here we are, three and a half years down the line, had the president's the, the policies of President Obama continued under Hillary Clinton. What would Iran look like right now with, well, coming up in October, they would be getting weapons. The arms embargo would be, is ending in October, and that's the next fight that's going to take place with the United States trying to stop Iran from being able to get conventional weapons from everybody else. Of course, Russia is ready to send them to them. Russia needs the money. That would be great. Imagine if, imagine if on top of the $150 billion that they got, non-frozen assets, on top of... The 1.4, I think it was, a $1.7 billion they got in cash for the prisoner exchange on top of the actual prisoners that they got back. What happens when Iran, three and a half years later, is flushed with cash investment from Europe, from Russia, from China, from elsewhere, if the United States did not exit the nuclear deal? What would have happened to the state of Israel? I would tell you right now, it'd be that Israel would be in a whole lot worse position and I think that's very much undeniable, that's what President Obama was trying to do, was to jeopardize Israel's security. This wasn't negligence on his part. This wasn't some type of, well, I think this is going to be great for the Middle East to have this nuclear deal with Iran. No, this was, this was cover to allow Iran to get a free pass in every other sphere of influence it has, 
And it was a chance to recalibrate the Middle East in favor of the enemies of the state of Israel. This wasn't an accident. This was done on purpose. And you should want to know why. There is a deeper spiritual issue here. And the underlying reason of why President Obama was so against the state of Israel and really so against the United States of America, if you look at what's happening right now, there is a reason for it. And I want you to read an article that I'm going to post in the in the show notes. It's entitled, What Inspires President Obama's Relationship with Israel? It's written back in 2013. Um, but it goes into the Bible and it shows what President Obama was doing and what motivates him. It'll be in the show notes. I have some people, some people on this, when they're listening to this, they they say, I'm not going to listen to a full, you know, 30 minute program. And so why can't you write it down? And others is like, when I do say, please read this, this, they say, well, I'm not listening to your program to have you tell me to go read something. So I don't know if I can, if I can win there, but please do go ahead and read this article. What inspires President Obama's relationship with Israel? This is a running story and we'll continue to bring that uh, to you as time goes on. We're going to have a break right now. When we come back, we'll be talking about the Caesar Act and how it will reshape the Middle East in terms of Iran's power in both Syria and Lebanon. Don't go away. KPCG 101.3 Trumpet Radio is your source of understanding. Trumpet Radio broadcasts from the campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College in Edmond, Oklahoma and online at kpcg.fm. Thank you for listening. Today, we begin a sustained campaign of sanctions against the Assad regime under the Caesar Act, named after the brave photographer who six years ago brought the world documented proof of the Assad regime's brutality against fellow Syrians. These targeted designations seek to deny the regime revenue and support that it uses to wage war and to commit mass atrocities against the Syrian people. The individuals and entities targeted today have played a key role in obstructing a peaceful political solution to the conflict by enabling the Assad regime to wage war against Syrians. For more than nine years, the Assad regime has inflicted violence upon the Syrian people and committed innumerable atrocities, some of which rise to the level of war crimes and crimes against humanity. It is time for Assad's horrific, needless war to end. Today, the Assad regime and those who support it have a simple choice. Take irreversible steps towards a lasting political solution to the Syrian conflict in line with UNSCR 2254 or face ever new tranches of crippling sanctions. That was a clip from Morgan Ortegas. She is the State Department spokesman. She spoke that or gave that that little brief message on June 17th to roll out the Caesar Act. Now, we're going to talk about briefly this Caesar Act on the second half of today's program because it has the power to really reshape the Middle East. And right now we're at a critical moment. I wrote about an article about this uh, this week on Watch Jerusalem. We're at a critical moment of the Syrian civil war. We're really back where we started nine years ago when it began. The situation for Assad is dire. His people are revolting against him. The Druze community in the south, they are coming out against him as well. They, as you know, if you live in Israel, they aren't used to protesting that much. Um, they basically accept they've lived in this border area of the Golan Heights and across into Syria for a long time. 
And they basically accept whoever comes in and says, okay, you're the leader. Fine. Just leave us be and we'll, you know, do what we have to do. Um, we're not going to rise up against you. That doesn't normally happen. Turns out now that these Druze on the Syrian board, on the Syrian side of the border, are rising up for the first time in nine years against Assad's rule. It's a significant change, and it's coming at the exact time where you have mass unemployment, mass poverty inside Syria, the currency's in free fall. Uh, before last month, in the six months previous, the currency lost half its value. And in the last month alone, it lost its half of half its value again. And so people are just not being able to buy food, food to live, because their currency is not worth anything right now. And so with this Caesar Act, what it basically does is it labels the Assad regime as a criminal regime, and it applies secondary sanctions to any company that aids and abets the Syrian regime. And so say you're a company and you're in Russia, and you want to help the Syrian regime build a factory, and this is going to end up in money for Russia. If you go down now and you build this factory for the Syrian regime, you will be now sanctioned by the United States government. You will not be able to do business with the United States or anyone else, uh, and whoever else the United States can pressure. So it's pretty serious. This is a very serious act, and it really does prevent the the restoration or let's say the reconstruction of Syria underneath the rule of Assad because whoever tries to go in there and give Assad money or actually bring their companies in there to rebuild, then they're going to be suffering from sanctions from the United States. And so it's easy to think about these sanctions as whatever the U.S. has applied to Iran to really hurt Iran's economy as it is hurting right now is now being applied to Syria. Even Asma uh, Assad, Bashar al-Assad's wife, who once appeared on the cover of Vogue magazine, she's been sanctioned. She can't leave Syria anymore. And so this is biting the royal family at a time when the royal family, and especially Assad, is actually going around and knocking on the doors to all his rich friends that have fought for him, that wanted him in power, and he's basically taking over their businesses because the state needs them. And if you don't like it, you're going to prison. That's what's happening inside Syria. And so this, this act does really come at the right time. This is an article that was written by Charles Lister in, in Politico this week. Is Assad about to fall? And he says this, quote, This new and almost unprecedented moment offers America, America an opportunity. Although it may seem like the Trump administration, particularly the White House, has paid little attention to Syria, it has an opening now. If it uses its remaining levers to exploit Assad's newly vulnerable position within an energized diplomatic effort in concert with our many allies in Europe, the Middle East and elsewhere, it has the chance to usher in real and long overdue changes to a country that could otherwise become a global tinderbox. So he was saying that this is the time. This is the time to act against Assad. And if you don't think that Assad needs acting against, just think about why this Caesar uh, Act actually came forward. The name Caesar is it's actually named after a defector of the Syrian regime. He was the forensic photographer of the Syrian regime who took over, 50, well, him and others took about 50,000 images 
in 2012 and 13 of corpses, dead bodies, and tortured bodies. And he brought and smuggled this evidence across the border in thumb drives in his in his shoes. And just as you remember that horrible strike, the chemical weapons strike, the mustard gas strike back in 2013, you remember that, that Assad did, killing 1,700 of his own people. Just as that was happening, this man decided that it was too dangerous for him to go back and take more photos, and so he defected. And he came through Turkey, I believe, handed over a lot of information to the United States and others, all the photos. They were deemed that they were accurate photos. They were not fabrications. And the the case was meant to come forward that this was going to be used against Assad at The Hague war tr- for, for war crimes. There was going to be a war crimes tribunal against Assad to show what he's done to prove it once and for all with these photographs. That was back in 2013 and 14. The former administration, the Obama administration, didn't really do much with these photographs, just like they didn't do anything uh, when the red line was crush, uh, crossed Sorry, with the mustard gas attack and allowed Russia to come in there and take the, the, um, the chemical weapons stockpile of the Assad regime. The Russians, again, saving the Obama administration or allowing them to save face. But again, why didn't he act? Of course, he wanted to change the Middle East. And so why would you act against Assad when you're trying to negotiate a deal with Iran and Assad is supported by Iran. And so we have all these all these photographs and most of them were taken in Hospital 601, which is just outside Damascus. And a lot of these bodies came through there. It's very horrific, very horrific. And there was legislation that was beginning to pass, well, which was put forward during the time when uh, there was a lame duck uh, presidency under President Obama, right at the end there, he just slipped it in. Obviously, it wouldn't pass. New government came in. And that was meant to be the forerunner for the Caesar Act, which we're seeing right now. And so here we are a couple of years into the the Trump administration back in December. Last year, the Caesar Act was passed through uh, the Senate, signed by uh, the signed into law by President Trump, and it came into effect on the 17th of June. And so it is affecting Syria. But it's not just Syria that's going to be affected by this. It'll also deeply impact Lebanon. Lebanon, which has been called one, the one of the lungs of Syria. Syria breathes when it has access to Lebanon. And the United States is trying to cut off that lung, trying to cut off the support that Hezbollah can give to the Syrian regime. I'm just going to play a clip from Al Jazeera a couple of days ago, which goes into some of these details and how Lebanon affects what's happening in Syria. Lebanon's Tripoli port was getting ready to play a role in the rebuilding of Syria. A few kilometers from the border, it's well-placed to become a logistics hub for local and international companies. But any foreign investment or business dealings with President Bashar al-Assad's government will now be punishable by U.S. sanctions. The measure targets Assad's political and economic backers. Some of them are in Lebanon. I think it will be very difficult for Lebanon to keep maintaining his relationships with the Syrian uh, regime. It will, be, it will be difficult. They will not be able to reconcile as before. Syria is the only functioning land border Lebanon has. Trade might be affected. 
Lebanon is an economic crisis. What this means is Lebanon will be isolated. According to customs, we export more than we import, around $400 million. It's not clear whether commodities for which taxes have to be paid will be considered aid to the government. But what is clear is that Syria will find it harder to rely on Lebanon to avoid sanctions. It has used it to access dollars and banks for international trade. Lebanon is uh, one way out for, for, for him for smuggling, for exchanging uh, some, uh, some uh, to trade. Lebanon is a lung, a lung one of the lungs to, to, to breathe through. Sanctions also apply to any force operating in a military capacity for or on behalf of the Syrian regime. That would include Hezbollah, the armed Iranian-backed group that controls political power in Lebanon. It's calling for restoring relations with Damascus. Lebanon is in a difficult position. The government risks sanctions if it supports Syria's collapsing economy or doesn't move away from the Syria-Iran camp. Talks with the International Monetary Fund for much-needed financial aid to help deal with a deep economic crisis will also be affected. Authorities will be required to stop the smuggling of goods like fuel and wheat into Syria, which the United States believes is helping Assad's government survive. The new sanctions may not be directed at Lebanon, but Lebanese business owners, companies, politicians, even the state could be targeted. Zana Khudr Al Jazeera, Beirut. So again, you heard that was Al Jazeera from a few days ago. You heard one of the people interviewed talking about how Lebanon acts as this lung for Syria. It needs trade with Lebanon to breathe. But also Lebanon, particularly the smugglers backed by Hezbollah, are now going to be targeted by these United States sanctions. The U.S. has been struggling to find out a way to hurt Hezbollah without hurting Lebanon. And I believe by targeting these agents, Hezbollah agents, Hezbollah companies, that are aiding and abetting the Assad regime, they've found a way to do that as much as possible. Now, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah is not happy with this, obviously. He called on the Lebanese people this week to not submit to this act that aims to starve Lebanon and Syria. He then added, to those who will make us choose between killing with weapons or starvation, we will hold our weapons in our hands, we will not starve, and we will kill them. So this is a pretty strong, well, he's used to saying these type of things, has, uh, Nasrallah is, and that's, probably, that's why he lives in a bunker, uh, because he doesn't want to come outside, because he may be targeted. Um, but he has got some firm rhetoric there against the United States. And it's also really what we're going to see and what a number of Lebanese commentators have talked about is how with Lebanon's situation right now, which is the worst that it's been in 30 years, they too are suffering from mass poverty, mass people on the streets, mass inflation, their currency not worth anything. And they're already been protesting since last October against the cronyism that exists inside their government, against the hold that Iran has. And now you've got the United States saying that any of you guys inside Lebanon, mainly looking at Hezbollah, that aids and abets the Syrian regime, any of you companies, we're going to be targeting you, and you won't be able to do with any business with anyone else in the world. And if you do, then they'll be targeted by sanctions. 
So this is going to have a powerful result. I mean, it might take some time for us to see the effect it's going to have. I personally don't think it's going to take much time. I think Russia might actually be turned because the whole reason that Russia has been involved, or one of the main reasons Russia has been involved in Syria is because it wants to have its companies reconstructing that nation to get the, I forget how many billions of dollars worth of $150 billion, $200 billion is going to be the reconstruction, something like that of Syria. And Russia hopes to get that money, but it's not going to get that money if the United States decides to sanction all those Russian companies. And so I think they may, they could turn on the Assad regime, turn him in. Obviously, the Iranians aren't going to give up, so um, they're going to try and claw onto that relationship with and hold onto that relationship with Syria going forward and with Hezbollah in Lebanon. But it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good for Iran's hold on those nations. And why we're focusing on this is because biblical prophecy also indicates that both Syria and Lebanon aren't going to be under Iran's wing. As as crazy as that sounds, especially to those living in northern Israel, that that the Lebanese uh, Lebanese people are going to rise up against Hezbollah and will rise up against Iran's influence that nation. That is going to happen. There is a prophecy that's found in Psalm chapter eighty three. And this is a prophecy, we know it's such, because it, and you can read any commentary about this, this is something that hasn't happened anciently. Often in prophecy, you'll have a former type and a latter day type, but this one has never happened, this, and, and at all. These nations have never been allied together, and one of the nations that is mentioned in this alliance, and all these nations, mind you, are in a counter-alliance to, to Iran, so that's how we know that they're not going to be uh, with the Iranians, one of these nations that are mentioned, or these ten nations that are enumerated here, we've got Turkey, we've got all the uh, Saudi Arabia. Of course, they go by their ancient names. You have Jordan. See, a lot of these nations are actually Sunni Arab states, what we would normally call the moderate, moderate Arab states. They are not going to be allied with Iran. And inside this passage, it mentions Gibal and the inhabitants of Tyre. Gibal was in Lebanon anciently, or in the territory that Lebanon now holds anciently, and so is the inhabitants of Tyre that are there, as it says, and Tyre is in southern Lebanon. So Gibal is another name for Byblos, which is a city even today on the uh, in modern Lebanon. And the inhabitants of Tyre, of course, again, are these people in southern Lebanon. A 2017 DNA study published by the American Journal of Human Genetics showed that 93% of modern-day Lebanese, uh, the genome of the modern-day Lebanese, so their DNA, matched with the ancient biblical-era inhabitants of this land, which is really interesting. It shows that, for the most part, the current-day current Lebanese are simply descendants of the ancient inhabitants of Tyre, are the ancient Gibalites, if, if you can call them that. The Lebanese, although they, plenty of them have traveled out as this Lebanese all over the world, the Lebanese that are still there, most of their DNA, a huge percentage, 93% of, of their genome matched matched the ancient uh, Lebanese, if we can call them that, those that have been dug up from 3,000 years ago. They're the same people. The Gibalites didn't migrate. Habitants of Tyre didn't migrate. So the same people that were described in Psalm 83 when that was written 
are still there today. Their modern descendants are there today. And so we know, based on this prophecy in Psalm 83, which is a a counter-Iranian alliance, we know that they are going to shift away from Iran. And that's why we draw your attention to this. This isn't just about geopolitics, but it's about the Bible and Bible prophecy being fulfilled. How we have a series of end-time alliances that are coming together. Iran forms one Middle Eastern alliance. And then this other alliance in the Middle East has mainly moderate Arab states, Sunni states, and they're going to be allied with Europe. They're going to be allied with Europe. And so from that, we can tell that uh, Syria and Lebanon are going to part ways with Iran. And maybe this, and it definitely does seem like this, Caesar Act by the United States is going to bring that to pass. And of course, these alliances are needed to be formed because they're direct precursors to the coming of the Messiah. Yes, there is going to be great conflagration in the latter days. That's what the Bible says. But at the conclusion of that, the Messiah will be here and he will be putting down the weapons of warfare as those passages in Isaiah, the passages in Micah, Micah talk about. But directly before that, we have these alliances sorting themselves out. And one that has to happen and happen soon is this alliance between Syria and Lebanon being broken off from Iran. And that's exactly what the, the Caesar Act is attempting to do. If you would like to know more about this prophecy and, and go through it in greater detail than I've covered, please do go ahead and read our article by Mr. Gerald Flurry entitled How the Syrian Crisis Will End. It's important you read that. It was written back, back in 2012. goes through the biblical forecast there. And as that happens, I really do want you to remember where you heard the conclusion of it, especially when nobody, even today, probably believes that it's possible to remove Hezbollah's power hold over Lebanon. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening in. If you'd like to send me some feedback on the program or even our website, watchjerusalem.co.il, you can write emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. If you're listening to this and you do receive the print magazine and you haven't yet received a copy of it, I would ask that you email our email address and just let me know. We are trying to make sure that it gets to you even under coronavirus. And it seems like some parts of the world have been left out by their postage services. And so we will try and get you a copy of any way that we can for that magazine. So if you haven't received that yet and you are on the mailing list, please go ahead and send me an email. Have a good week.